Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we wanna say thanks for questions coming from our audience of Smith Weekly, including Gabe F., Luke A., Nick W., and Andy J. We have a new guest on the program today. Mr. Joe Ovsinik has joined us. Joe is president, CEO, and chairman of P2 Gold, a gold exploration junior focused on advancing two projects, the BAM Gold Copper Exploration Project in British Columbia, Canada, and also the GABS Gold Project in Nevada, United States. P2 Gold is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol PGLD and also on the US OTC markets under the symbol PGLDF. Joe, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much. Happy to be here. Yeah, Joe, it's a pleasure and good to have you on the program and discuss P2 Gold, which has a very interesting setup attached to it. And of course, we want to see a little bit better market conditions for gold and of course, see that perk up in sentiment as well. And first time on the program, why don't we kick it off here, Joe, for some of our audience who probably doesn't know you, but really you just given us your background and experience in this good old junior natural resource sector. Okay, well, going back a ways, uh, I first got in working at the company side with Silver Standard Resources back in 96. So uh, at Silver Standard, uh, Ken McNaughton and I, Ken's the other uh, founder of P2 Gold here, we uh, worked there through 2010, built uh, Silver Standard up from a low market company to a market cap company to a couple billion bucks, uh, built up a portfolio of over 2 billion ounces of silver in the ground, and put the Perkitis mine in production. Well, at Silver Standard, we, Ken's exploration discovered the Bruce Jack deposit up in Northwest British Columbia up in the Golden Triangle. We were looking to push that ahead. Our board of directors said, yeah, we're a silver company. We'll uh, leave that to some gold company to do. So we had another company set up, sold the asset over to that company, uh, Predium Resources. And then we joined that company and built, uh, took Bruce Jack from essentially discovery hole through to commercial production in under eight years, and then operated that. Uh, eventually, uh, Bruce Jack was acquired by Newcrest Mining out of Australia for 2.8 billion US. And well, uh, from, from the papers, uh, I guess Newmont should be closing the acquisition of Newcrest uh, in, in a couple of weeks, I hear. I think the vote on it's mid-October. So. Yeah, we've we've been in the business a long time, seen a lot of cycles, seen a lot of projects uh, over our lifetime at Silver Standard. And then we know how to move a project forward from outright exploration and discovery right through to commercial production and operation. So a lot of mileage. I have a lot of gray hair, so we'll go for that. <laughs> oh, Joe, you're, you're looking good in your old age. So uh... <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting background and definitely you guys have been successful in the past here and it's good to see you guys continue to want to to remain in the sector given your guys' success you, you don't necessarily have to be here but you still are and uh you know i think that uh says a few things and of course the wisdom has has gained and experience has gained since your early days and 
So that's also positive as, as far as how you guys are able to be efficient in how you grow these companies out. One of the other things, Joe, is you guys were just over at the Beaver Creek Conference in Colorado. Just talk about that in terms of how you saw that in terms of just, you know, sentiment, people that showed up there, any takeaways and the mood. Well, overall, I'd say, you know, talking to the, it's an explorer's conference, Beaver Creek. It's, you know, the producers are over at the Denver Gold Forum. So Beaver Creek, a lot of juniors, a lot of explorers and, and, Overall, I'd say sentiments about as people are thinking this is about as low as it can get. Uh, you never know. I, I, you know, I, I do think we're approaching the bottom on sentiment. Uh, there, there isn't a lot of interest in grassroots exploration. If you have a discovery, a nice big discovery, something that could be big, there's a lot of interest. But just to get out and explore and and look for that next gold mine, that next copper mine, there is not a lot of interest out there. Uh, and I, I think, you know, at the conference, they were talking about, you know, record attendance, over 14,000 people in that. But the one thing I, uh, you know, we noticed and also uh, from talking with others is that there were not a lot of, you know, pe- portfolio manager types, people looking to invest in companies. There were a lot of companies there you know, looking at buying royalties, uh, technical side things, but not a lot of, of PMs looking to place money in the sector. So in time, when, when it changes, it's, it's, it's like a flood of, of people into the sector. But uh, at this point in time, we're still waiting for that flood to happen, I think. Good to hear and always good to get sentiment coming out of some of these conferences. I think there's a few key conferences that folks should try to attend on occasion and really get an idea for that sentiment and obviously that personal networking. I think that's also really important that often gets overlooked. Personal networking, very important in this sector. Also that, Joe, you've, you've been in the business for a long time. You've seen the ups and downs. How do you look at gold today in the conditions we're in now, which is generally a poor sentiment environment for the junior equities? because probably you have attraction still to the broad market, shiny objects that are more important than obviously mining and extractive industries. But then also you have a gold price that is holding up reasonably well with the current economics. You have, you know, interest rates looking uh, interesting here now that we've, you know, increased interest rates, at least from the U.S. standpoint, which tends to lead this a bit in terms of just global interest rates have increased recently. But what do you think happens next? And, and obviously you've seen this before in a sense that, you know, not everything's exactly the same, but often history does rhyme with a lot of these cycles. Where do you think we are? Do you think we're closer to a strong move up in gold prices and a return to capital in the junior sector because is really just so beat up at this point? What are your thoughts? Do you think we're there? You think it's going to take a few more years, you know, because mining is generally not liked. <laughs> It's so true. Uh, I, I think we're, we're getting close. We, we've been through a lot of cycles. This, this is a, you know, fairly harsh cycle, but we've been through cycles like this, the early 2000s, uh, you know, late 90s into early 2000s, you know, uh, 2008 through what, 10, there was a, a pretty hard cycle there. Um, yeah, it, you know, these it, it, it's cyclical, the business. And and, but I, I do feel we're, we're getting down to the bottom. You know, gold gold is performing incredibly well. Uh, you look at the U.S. dollars up near its highs. 
you know, quite high, quite strong. Interest rates are up, and there's still talk of going up a little further, maybe a couple more rate hikes. Uh, potentially, you know, we're going to hold at these rates for a year or more, uh, you know, higher for longer. And yet gold is holding up well over $1,900. In that kind of environment, usually you would expect gold to be a little more beaten up and people to be trashing gold. You know, I always think back to, you know, the, you know, post 2012 peak when Goldman Sachs, all they ever talked about was it was going back to 800 bucks. And, you know, now even Goldman's is talking about it going up to 2000 bucks or more. So, uh, you know, the, the, the sentiment, it, it, the belief in gold staying strong is there. It's just that sentiment hasn't filtered down to the gold mining industry. Uh, you know, one, one problem we have with all the inflation that went on, the majors, uh, even though they're making money, you know, I think the average cost, what, what's the cost per ounce for, say, New Montaparic? I think it's pretty high. I think it's up in that, if I remember right, about 1400 bucks last I heard. So there's not a you know, a lot of margin filtering through, which, you know, doesn't really attract the generalists and that into the space. But as soon as we see interest rates peak and maybe start to come off or at least hold steady, uh, I think you're going to see the U.S. dollar start coming off a little bit. I think gold is going to continue to firm. It's going to, you know, our thought is by the end of this year, it should be through 2000. And, you know, that's what Goldman's saying. And I, I you know, they usually make the market go where they want it to. So, you know, a little biased that way. But, you know, I, I think that's reasonable going through 2000 this year. And if not uh, by the end of this year, not far into next year, because once we see gold, once we see the U.S. dollar level off and, and start to decline, you know, if gold's this strong at this price, it's up in pretty much every, you know, I'm going sideways here, but, you know, gold, I think, is up in every currency other than the U.S. dollars. It's up near record high. So, you know, you, you, you match that with the U.S. dollar coming off as interest rates uh, level off and start coming down and you're just going to see gold go higher. So um, as as we all are in this industry, we're biased to the upside on gold. But uh, from what I can see, gold's performed exceptionally well at a time of uh, poor sentiment. And so it's going to continue to do well. And I, I think it's going to come back more. And there's a lot of underlying factors for that. I, you know, I don't want, uh, I'm not sure if you want me to go there, but I, I, I just think part of the drive on gold is this fragmentation that you're seeing around the world where you have the bricks sort of hiving off from the developed world and, and you have that tension developing between them. I think that just adds strength to the, to the gold market. And so uh, I, I think the coming years, gold's going to be very, very strong. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Well said, Joe. And I suppose I should rephrase and come back and just say mining is very difficult, very hard. Mining is not liked, but the junior expiration equities are absolutely hated. I think that there's, you know, a, a number of issues that play into that sentiment and that thinking. And then also, too, I, I do think with what you said about the bifurcation of the world here is interesting. The desire of some countries to back their currency with responsibly. And then a lot of places around the world that are just uncontrollably printing money. And I think those things, yeah, happy to say, this has been a very long slog in the sector. Yes. But I have to also say that at some point, 
everything comes home to roost and there are consequences. And of course, uh, the more that we see some of these things happen, I think the quicker this starts to speed up and it, and, and eventually it happens all at once, right? And I think that's where we are, are starting to look at this time. I think just one other thing to add, Joe, because you, again, you've been in the sector, you've had a lot of experience and you've been successful, you've had that taste of success. What is your thought just overall with the thinking that the junior sector, and I'm talking, you know, the exploration sector and I guess the promotional side of that, not necessarily the mid-tier or the major mining operating companies that are, you know, cash flowing and are sustainable businesses, but the junior side, you know, the kind of the, the Vancouver, the Torontos, the Perths of the world in the sense that the sector's been plagued so hard with promotion, essentially companies that uh, aren't going to create any value that investors are wore out. What's your thinking on that? What's your comments? And, and obviously, I think it does correct with obviously a return of higher gold prices. But what are your thoughts on that and the things you've seen in your time in the sector? From my experience, the way sentiment works in, in the industry is, first of all, when people start getting, you know, interested in gold and wanting to come back into this market, uh, it, it's not the explorers that take off first. You'll see because what you need there, there's, you know, the people that believe in the gold bugs, the people that believe in gold and want to invest in gold, they're there and they're going to stay there. They'll ride through these downtimes because they know it's coming back. It's cyclical and, and there's money to be made. And, and when things are low, that's the time to buy because uh, that's where the opportunity is. Uh, unfortunately, most people want to, you know, a lot of people tend to buy at the high. The way we really notice it is that the money starts flowing into the majors. And so the majors will go up in price and you'll start seeing that interest. Even just recently, I think if you looked at uh, during the during the COVID crisis, and all, you know, early days when it first came back first. Uh, so say to 2020, uh, first things that went up were the majors took off and, you, you know, they were going through the roof. Then the mid tiers come up, then it goes down to the junior producers and then it goes down to the grassroots explorers. So the, the cash tends to cascade down uh, as the sentiment increases in the industry. So yeah, we expect when sentiment turns, and, and from what I've heard, you know, on the sentiment front, you, know, you hear all kinds of people with theories on when it's turning and this and that. One of the things I heard from, you know, some people that I, I think are have a good handle on things is that gold really needs to break above $2,000 to start getting people back into the space. But once it does, I don't think you'll see money into the grassroots explorers right away. It's going to flow into the majors and then it's going to cascade down. And so there's a lot of opportunity to pick up grassroots companies at this point because of their sellings for at fractions uh, of, of what their potential is right at this point in time. So, uh, yeah, that, that's my thought on it. it it's, it's, a, it's a tough, tough market for grassroots explorers now. Uh, the majors, intermediates, junior producers have it better because the gold price is up high enough. They actually have cash flow. They can keep things going in that. The, it's the grassroots explorers without cash flow that are really, really feeling the pain of this market. And uh, But that will turn. And when it does, they're, they're going to probably go up the most. Uh, they often do. That's where the real multiples are generated down of these grassroots explorers. So that, that's my thought on how this is going to change. Good points. And I think folks should definitely listen in there and take a few notes on how they should approach this because it is very difficult. It's a challenging market. The rewards 
are substantial among the best in any market sector out there. With that comes significant risk. And then, of course, just that overall experience and understanding how to work those investments. I guess we should leave it there for gold now. And of course, I want to come into P2 gold here in a moment. But just one other thought, I'd like to get your just overall take of copper, because copper is part of some of these projects. And of course, especially in the Golden Triangle area of BC, you do have copper that comes up. And we've also seen some of the majors and mid-tiers talk more about copper. And so copper's getting a bit of a an audience as well. And I'd just like to get your overall thoughts on copper and thoughts on that market. We're, we're very bullish on copper here at P2. You know, traditionally, the way I've always looked at it, sort of cop, copper and gold were a little counter-cyclical. When, you know, when the economy's booming, maybe gold's not doing as well. There's not as much of a risk off and you're into copper. But, you know, I, I see the next 10 years plus where gold is... You know, getting back to gold, gold is moving into a sort of booming market and copper is just going to be in line with that or better. Uh, you can't electrify the world the way the various governments are trying to push this without copper. You can you can substitute for a lot of things, but they've yet to come up with a substitute for copper. So if you're going to have an electric car, you're going to have, you know, a wind turbine any of these things, you need copper. So copper is going to really shine. Uh, I think at this point in time, you know, it's, it's everybody sees it. Well, there's an argument on it, but we see a recession coming. I think the majority of people see a recession coming. And, you know, copper always leads recessions. That's why they call it Dr. Copper, that it, that it you know, has some insight into the economy there. Uh, once people start seeing the end of a recession and that things are going up, copper is going to take off. Uh, I can't say how high it's going to go, but it's significantly higher than it is now. And so I think uh, we're coming into a real, uh, real boom time for copper. And so that's why I think gold and copper are perfect companions on this. And it's great to have the two metals working side by side. And, you know, coming back to P2, uh, both our BAM project and GABS project uh, in, in Nevada are gold copper projects. And we think that uh, can't, couldn't, couldn't be better. I think the real upside at the end of the day with copper, it's going to take some time to work through it, but the real upside is just the inability to get new big projects online because of yes. all the constraints, all the red tape, all the bureaucracy, all the issues. That to me is the biggest importance of that. And I'll save you the time, Joe, talking about energy, because I'm sure you and I could start talking about energy and climate and CO2 and electrification and all this stuff. But uh, let's spare the audience on that part and get into P2 Gold here. <laughs> but why don't we kick off P2 Gold now and have you just give us a quick overview of the company. And then I'd like to talk more things on project specifics and, of course, capital structure. Quick overview. P2 is a junior explorer developer. Our project we're pushing on uh, right now at this point in time is we have a gold copper project in Nevada called the GAPS project. Recently came out with a preliminary economic assessment. We believe GAPS is going to be a mine and we believe it's going to be a mine in the not too distant future in the next four, four years and change. So uh, that's, that's where we're focused right now. We have a BAM project up in the Golden Triangle in Northwest British Columbia. That's, we know the area well, we know the people, we know all the stakeholders, we deal with the First Nations. Um, 
So we can operate there. We think BAM has the potential to be a big gold, copper, porphyry system. Uh, it needs more work before we can get, hone in on that system, but we have all the indications that there's something big sitting there. We just need to do more work. So that's a, a quick update uh, on, on P2. Um, personally, we, we own, you know, if you look at the share structure, management owns well over 20% of the company. I think 20, close to 22% of the company. Uh, we've paid, you know, for our stock. Uh, Ken and I own the majority of that. And, you know, we're, our, our, let's just say our cost base is well north of where we're trading today. So we're well incentivized to get the price of P2 gold up. So we're working with our shareholders uh, and, and we know how to move these kind of junior companies along. We've, we've done it in the past. We've built up companies and we plan to build P2 gold up into a gold producer and, and make things happen. Very well. A good quick overview as I asked for it there. I appreciate that. And with that, why don't we talk capital structure for a moment and just talk about where the shares outstanding are at this point, the cash on hand and your opinion, Joe, on really how far that gets you down the road at this point, given the work that you plan to do in the near future. And then just come back and touch on your ownership a little bit more and also just the prices in which you and the team have financed this company. Sure. So at P2, if we look at our share structure, we've got about 106 million issued and outstanding at this point in time. Uh, major holders, management, as I say, 22%, just under 22% of the company. Uh, Waterton, a uh, private equity outfit, uh, owns about 17% of the company, and they picked up their interest when we acquired the Gabs project from them. Uh, so, you know, we've got two made between management and, and the Waterton. We're sitting, you know, close to 40% of the shares. We know other groups have stock. So, you know, over 50% of the shares of P2 are tightly held. So it gives us about a 50 million float, 55 million float. Not, not too bad a share structure on the cash side you know we're, we're not flush with cash but now that we have our preliminary economic assessment out on gabs we're actively working to sell a royalty on gabs our plan is to sell a royalty two percent royalty on gabs uh looking to the future that would allow us to clean up our capital structure and to probably go a year to two years without having to raise any money so that would allow us to you know, make it through this harsh equity market and still advance our projects without massive dilution. So we, we think that's the best way to go. Uh, you know, as I say, we're big shareholders in the company and we think that's the best bang for the buck for the shareholders. So, you know, we'll sell the royalty, push gabs ahead, do a little work on BAM, but not, not you know, don't go back there and drill until, you know, people are rewarding you for exploration. Right now, there is no reward for going out and exploring for something. So we'll do geology, geophysics, really improve our understanding so that we can make a real, you know, uh, get the most for our money when we're back in there. But, you know, over the next year, two years, focus until the market turns, focus on advancing gaps. You know, with that royalty sold, you know, the idea is we don't go back to the market for a year or two uh, to ride through this downturn. Appreciate your opinion on that. It's clear that you guys are exploring more than just looking at equity, and you, of course, have an asset that in which should bring some folks to the table. With that, just one last question on financing. Uh, do you see, with a potential royalty coming forward, do you see 
a potential financing, say, between now and the end of the year to just kind of cover off a little bit of GNA, or are you guys completely comfortable with a royalty should satisfy you? Well, our, our, our view is a royalty should do the job. We'd rather not finance at these levels. It just dilutes the shareholders down more, and everybody believes their shares are undervalued, no matter who you speak with. But ours are definitely undervalued, and I think a royalty sale allows us to, to advance the projects, cover some GNA, and allow us to weather this downturn in the market so that we're back, uh, you, know, you know, get into that. Ideally, we're into feasibility on that, on our GAPS project by mid next year, you know, and still without having to go back to the capital markets after we've uh, sold the royalty. So that's the plan. And Joe, why don't you talk just a little bit about some of the folks that you have on the team there and, of course, their relevance to the company? Uh, we have Ken McNaughton. Uh, Ken and I have worked together since 96. He was at Silver Standard before me. He, you know, Silver Standard became, uh, you know, was very successful. Uh, it's currently, it changed its name a while back and became SSR Mining after we left. But, you know, Ken oversaw every... Uh, you know, exploration project we ran at, uh, at Silver Standard from 1991 through 2010 when we left. And we had a lot of success, a lot of discoveries. Uh, a lot of the, you know, some of those are in production today. Other ones are, are projects are moving towards production. So, uh, and, and Ken oversaw the team. He was in, responsible um, for the discovery of the Bruce Jack deposit, which became a, quite a quite a profitable mine. So, a lot of experience in assessing projects and, and moving them forward. Uh, we have Michelle Romero. She's our uh, EVP. Uh, a lot of experience on, on community work. Uh, uh, just she was our sustainability person over at Predium Resources. So she's here with us now. We're making sure that, you know, we tick the boxes. A lot of investors want to see that you're, you know, you've ticked the boxes on ESG because they can't invest in you. Uh, without that so we've uh, you know we're not really uh, with a market cap to get those big investors in this now but what we've done is we've set the company up so that as our market cap moves up and we're starting to see some of the major funds looking to you know invest in us that we ticked all the boxes so they can participate so michelle's taking care of that uh that's you know and then we've got our cfo we brought him, we had him over at Predium Resources, young guy, uh, you know, very good, have brought him along. He came and joined us. Uh, we hired him away from Predium uh, just before they were taken over. Look, just gets the job done, solid, great understanding of the financials and what it does, uh, what we need to do to remain compliant. So that that's the core of the team. We have some young geologists as well who uh, are, are great, and we have a project manager down oversees our GABS project down in, in Nevada who, who gets the job done and has seen a lot of projects around the world. So yeah, always gives some good insight. So now we've got a good team, a lot of experience and focused on, on getting the job done. Uh, on the board level, we have some very experienced board members that have joined us and, and that's because they, you know, we've worked with them in the past. Uh, some we've worked with, others have been advisors to us in the past. And so you put that all together, uh, we're, we're well set up to take advantage of, of the market as things move up so that we can be up there. We'll be building the mine. We're 
were well placed, I guess is the word, to take advantage of an increase in the price of gold and copper as we go forward. That sounds good, Joe. I appreciate the the comments there and how you guys are looking to approach this. You bring up ESG. I just have to ask, and this is a little bit of a playful question, but uh, should investors only invest in the junior natural resource sector based on a company's ESG score that is shown in their brokerage app on their smartphone? Well, you know, I'll, I'll have to say, you know, to be honest, that'd be the last thing you should look at. Uh, but as you as you start to grow, you'll find that I think is for investing in the junior space, it's what you want, what you got to focus on is a management team that knows how to drive projects forward, see what they have for projects. And if, if, if the management team has the experience to deliver and you like the project, that that's what you look at. ESG is just something you need to do from my perspective. I'll probably get canceled over this, but um, ESG is something you need to do to allow the bigger funds when they move into your market as you, you know, as you get into the development stage of a project in order to allow them to invest. So you have to do it right. And look at, you know, if you look at the mining space, it, no one out there is looking to do it, you know, destroy the environment. Everybody knows we have to work with the, you know, the world around us, you know, and most of the guys in the mining business, especially the early stage, they like to be out, you know, geologists, mining and guys, they, they like to be out in these places where you build mines. It's, you're not building mines in the city, you're out in the woods or on the mountaintops. And, you know, so, you know, there's a natural, uh, you know, desire to make sure you do it right. And so, you know, juniors aren't going around trying to destroy uh, the environment and, and they want to work with people because they know if you don't work with people, you can't succeed. And so I think ESG comes naturally uh, and, and you actually do those things as a junior, you know, explorer in that. But for, for to get these big funds in, you actually have to document everything. So one of the important things to do is you make sure you have your policies in place. You, you know, you can, you can show them that you're looking after this. Because just because you do it doesn't mean you'll get credit for it. Everything has to be documented. And so that's, I think, the big thing that you have to do here. Document these things so that the bigger funds can come and invest. Because some of them, you know, that's their requirement. They're barred from investing unless you tick the box on ESG. So that's why you do it. But, uh, you know, none of the guys I've ever worked with uh, have, have, you know, they've always been responsible always worked well with the people in the local communities. Um, so, you know, a lot of it's just natural. So anyways, that's my thought on it. Sorry, a little bit of a long rant, but uh, I, I get a little, uh, you know, annoyed when people focus more on the ESG than actually on the growth of the company and whether these guys are, are doing something right as opposed to just ticking boxes and sitting there and living the lifestyle. Don't worry, Joe, I'm not offended by your comments. Matter of fact, I agree quite a bit with everything you're saying here in the sense that for good business practice has a home for ESG. And ESG, of course, before, let's not forget, was CSR. The bottom line of it is, is good business practice, building a sustainable business that hopefully goes from cash consuming to cash flowing. Naturally, those practices would come into this. It's a little bit silly in the sense that we have to write a specification for that good business practice that has always existed amongst good people who want to actually do those things because they Correct. realize it benefits 
the overall economy, the overall community, and of course the business, it drives the returns of the business. And we're not investing in these companies without the expectation of growth, discovery, return, value, in the case of an operating business, respectable and efficient you know, financial statements and operations. It's just really interesting how that's approached and, and how it's become such an important flavor of the day but things like people, things like basic practices, things like environmental stewardship and good operating practices really make up all that. Without capital, you can't have ESG. So yes. it's really, and then it's, it's also interesting, you brought up another point. All of these things that happen in nature and out in the bush, if you will, in the sense that you know deposits are found, geologists are out there looking, there's lots of capital that goes in, there's of course capital wasted because sometimes you don't find anything. But at the end of the day, all of these mining operations contribute to cities and cities are nothing more a cumulative of mining results, extractive industries. It's concentrated in a city that it's funny that the consumers of those mines, the cities somehow don't like mining. So it's just really <laughs> yeah. interesting. Uh, so let's stop there on that stuff because you and I could probably talk all day on those issues, but let's come back here and I want to zoom out a little bit and look at British Columbia as a jurisdiction, which you're very familiar with. You've dealt with this government before, Bruce Jack, obviously. How do you see BC today with respect to their appetite for mining? And then of course, the fact that BC has been built on and the wealth has been generated originating from extractive industries and the use of natural resources to provide good economics. But how do you see BC today? It's not impossible to get a mine built there, but you've done it. Talk about BC for a moment and how you see it. Well, look, I, you know, BC's got tough standards, but they want, you know, they're supportive of mining. Uh, and, you know, we get back to that city versus country bit. You know, a lot of the people in the city just don't realize where their stuff comes from. So you'll, you know, you'll, get this anti-mining sort of in, in the bigger cities, but you get out in, in, you know, in the North or the, or the East and, you know, that's what's built these economies. BC's built on forestry, mining, fishing, uh, historically, and, and mining still contributes a significant part to the economy. Once you're out of the big cities, like say you get out of Vancouver and you get up into the North, where, where's the fun money generated from, for people to live there? And so mining is is well supported. Uh, you know, we had a lot of support from the First Nations, from the local communities uh, in building Bruce Jack. And, and if you have that support, you will get your mine built. Uh, and so the, the government uh, is there. They're, they're holding your, you know, to make sure you perform on the and you live up to all their standards, tough standards environmentally. But you can you can build a mine with them. We did. And, you know, we were permitted pretty damn fast. We filed for our permits in, you know, essentially January 2014, had our provincial government permit by early March, if I remember right, early April 2015. So a year and a quarter on, uh, on the provincial and about a year and a half getting the federal permit in. And so, you know, you know, that's pretty good compared to most countries. Uh, you know, maybe some countries can get that done in, in a year, maybe a bit less. But, you know, they, they, there's, a, there's a process in place. It's well-defined. And you get into that process. You make sure you get the right data in so that, you know, good data going in. And it will move through the process fairly quickly. 
And when you come out of it and you're building a mine, when you have that mine up and running, you know, your, your water quality is good, your air quality is good. So, you know, it's hard for any of these NGOs to get on your case because you are meeting some of the best standards in, in the world. Uh, so I, I think it's a great place to build a mine. Uh, the government does want to see mining. The local communities, for the most part, there's some communities that don't want to see mining, some First Nations that don't want to see mining. Well, uh, you don't go mining in their areas. You, you stick to the areas because there's a lot of, it's a big province, covers a lot of territory, a lot of potential, and you go and you work where you've got good support. Like our BAM project, we're up in Northwest BC, up in the sort of center to northern part of the Golden Triangle. Um, First Nations, we're in the traditional territory of the Taltan. And they are very commercial. They 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 know what they want. They uh, good negotiators, uh, commercial, supportive. Uh, so, you know, they're they're good people to work with. And so we, we've worked with them in the past and, you know, we plan to work with them in the future. We're, we're in their territory, uh, but supportive of mining. And, and so that's what you want to do. Find a place where uh, the communities are supportive. The First Nations are supportive, it, and then go to town. So that can, that can work in British Columbia. It's it's a good place to be. I think it's important, and even for you know these late stage economies, if you will, to understand that the origination of wealth came from extractive industries in the new hey, use yes. of natural resources to provide that foundation of good economics, Joe. And so uh, I think that BC, while it is difficult, it's still there, and it's a prominent mining jurisdiction in Canada. And of course, you guys are really familiar with the process there because of Bruce Jack and the success coming out of that. Why don't we switch gears here and why don't we move into the BAM exploration project first, Joe? And I'd like to just have you kind of run through a couple things here. Really just, you know, the current updates on what is happening there at the project. You know, obviously there's been some past real results that were released out. And then also just what you see are the next plans for this project. And of course, I have to ask, how is this project shaping up? I know it's early days. But how is this project shaping up to your expectations? Because you guys have a high bar, that being Bruce Jack. But how is this thing starting to shape up? Look at BAM. We picked it up because we like the jurisdiction. We like the, you know, it's Golden Triangle, our backyard. It's about 90 kilometers north of Bruce Jack. And it had, well, in the 60s, there was a small copper deposit discovered on the property. In the early 80s chevron resources when the oil you know when the oil companies all had sort of, sort of their mineral exploration divisions was looking for gold there found some high grade gold near surface and that and then the project essentially just sat around and we looked at that and we thought you know since the 80s we 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 saw it we looked at it this is 2020 uh, uh, summer 2020 we looked at it thought geez you know we've got we got the gold there we've got the copper there we're just east of galore creek the big you know, gold, copper, porphyry system that Newmont uh, Corporation and, and Tech are advancing. I think they're just coming out of pre-feasibility study there. You know, it's going to be a big mine there. We're just southeast of Redcrest, a Newcrest mine. You know, we're, we're in the heart of where things are happening. There's porphyries, shaft creeks just on a northern border. So we like the geography, where we were located. We like the infrastructure, where we're just off the Galore Creek Road, a couple kilometers off the road. You know, that's for the Golden Triangle, that's like, you know, unheard of. We, you know, for, for Bruce Jack, we had to build a 75 kilometer road just to get to the project and the last 12 kilometers of it crossed a glacier. So, you know, 
it's it's a it's tough country and and bam sits there with a nice access road we've got uh you know a big power transmission line about 35 kilometers to the east so say 20 25 miles east of us you know there's a there's a nice transmission line we can tie into so infrastructure wise it has everything it's got all the sniffs that tell you look there's something you know that gold came from somewhere that copper came from somewhere where do we put it together um, so we have a, a nice size land package we've added on to our original project uh, we've got 27,000 hectares so you know 27 square kilometers um, you know so big 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 land package now we have to hone in on on where is the source of that surface mineralization and you know if you look at the work we've done you know we picked it up we did a initially a grassroots exploration program we picked it up you know summer 2020 we only had by the time you know we got on the ground we had a couple weeks did some soil sampling came up with this monarch gold zone based on soil samples 2021 we went back drilled a few holes in it and bam they we had some great you know i'd like to say bam uh we had some great results um in which said oh geez there's something here and we think there's going to be some size so uh we came back this year well last year drilled off we ended up with a resource of about 600,000 ounces of gold at about 0.6 grams of gold per ton. So, you know, decent size resource, but more, more just, you know, it tells you there's there's gold here and, and it's coming from somewhere. This is just the low grade surface uh, expression of, of, of that system. So uh, we came back in this year and looked to drill deeper. We had some good geophysics. It was, uh, we'd hoped to drill the prior prior year, but you know, nothing ever goes well, uh, you know, as you want in the mining business. It takes time to get things done. It was slow getting the geophysics. So we drilled up near the surface in 2022. Uh, over the winter 23, we had a lot of time to process data and really look at it. Came back this year, drilled a couple holes uh, based on flow through financing. Um, uh, that is up till recently. That was the one form of financing a grassroots explorer could get in Canada. And it's essentially, it allows you to sell shares. And when you do the exploration work, you pass through your costs to those people, the people who purchase those shares so they can write it off their taxes. It's a little bit like the LLC set up in the United States. So up until recently, that was, you know, where, where the money could be had for grassroots exploration. So we raised some of that money, uh, started our work program. We had more money promised based on the usual. We're raising this money. Uh, the funds were raising money. They would have it and we'd drill it. And, you know, the funds had to back out of the financing because they could not raise that money. So even flow through financing for grassroots explorers have really dried up for that, you know, getting out and just exploring. So in, in essence, we had to cut our program short. So we, we drilled a couple holes to our best targets. Neither of those hit that we explained why we had geophysics anomalies from those targets. They were sitting underneath the monarch gold zone and our jan copper zone the two zones that are defined on the property uh, we drilled beneath both because the geophysics was lining up with the geology uh, the mineralization the, the temperature gradient of the rocks it was looking really good but we put two holes in didn't uh, didn't hit but what we did learn from those holes is that the monarch gold zone is about 100 million years younger than the jan copper zone which uh, which means the Jan Copper zones in a, you know, older older rock. It's before when you, you know, most of the porphyries 
that you're, well, the porphyries that you see up in the Golden Triangle are in that 200, 225 million range. I think Bruce Jack mineralization was about 190 million years ago in that range, 194, I think. So, you know, our, our, our monarch gold zones, the right age mineralization, uh, Jan is, is, is older. And, and so what we have to do now is step back, reassess our geophysics, do a bit more geophysics, have a good hard look at the geology and see where this gold mineralization at Monarch is flowing from. And so that's what we're going to be doing over this next year. As I, I said earlier, we won't go back and drill at Monarch or our BAM property until the sentiment changes and people are rewarding you for doing grassroots exploration. There's no sense trying to beat your head against the wall and raise money to drill exploration holes in this environment. So, but, you know, we'll sell a royalty, we'll have sufficient cash to advance GABs, and we'll be able to go back and really take a hard look at the geology, do a bit more geophysics, and really hone in on, you know, where is this gold flowing from? And so that's what we need to do at BAM. We believe there's still excellent potential for something big at BAM, and we have all, we have a big piece of ground to the north of the Monarch Gold Zone where things seem to be flowing from. So I expect as we look through the, you know, over this year, we're going to be looking to the north of the Monarch Gold Zone to see where it's coming out of. That's what we think it's coming from. So anyways, that's a wander through BAM, but uh, happy to answer any other questions you have on it. Joe, I think that's a good start off here. I think it's good just to reiterate to the audience that, you know, this is early stage exploration, but there is a credible team behind this. And Obviously, this is part of the efforts to to search this out. And of course, we've got market conditions that are crap and have to deal with that from a financing standpoint to be able to punch holes because punching holes is expensive. Maybe just come back here and talk a little bit about just what your overall expectations would be and, and just give the audience a flavor too, Joe, of what you think is a real viable project in BC from a gold standpoint in terms of you know size location the grade the expected recoveries that would come out of these types of deposits that you would expect here on bam and then just overall scale that would be worthy of development because obviously you know a little bit about what you guys have for internal targets as you start to hopefully delineate a discovery if you've obviously done this with Ruth jack which is operated now by newcrest but just talk about, you know, what you guys would expect to really get, you know, either a mid-tier or a major interested in what you've done. Well, look at that. Up, up in the triangle, it's not a cheap place to operate or, or explore. So, yeah, you have two ways to look at it. You're, you're either looking for a big gold copper porphyry like Galore Creek to the uh, west of us. I think it's from memory, it's about, you know, 9 million ounces of gold, 10, 11, you know, billion pounds of copper it is big and so you, you either have scale to to you know justify you know building a mine or you have grade at bruce jack we had grade and you know it was, it was it's a big gold mine but you know it's you know i think when we went into production uh we had you know seven eight million ounces of gold at pretty good grade so you, you need to have uh size and either a lot of volume it's a big mine so you can make your margin that way or it's a smaller mine but you have grade and and you make your money that way and so that's what you need for the triangle uh, and then just because you have that doesn't mean you can build it it's tough 
tough conditions, uh, tough building infrastructure to get in. That's why Galore Creek hasn't been built yet by, by Newmont and Tech. The uh, Nova Gold was trying to build a mine there. What was that? 2005, six, seven, sort of in that era, I think six and seven. And, you know, it, it you know, they, I think they thought that their costs were going to be about two and a half to three billion. I'm, you know, this is going from memory here. And I think, you know, got shut down in 2007 because all of a sudden it was going to be five or six billion. Well, things haven't gotten cheaper since then. And so you're looking at big multi-billion projects, you know? So, uh, the, the nice thing about BAM, and this is why I brought it up when, when I spoke earlier, is, you know, it's it's close to a road. It's close to a transmission line. If you have to punch a, a, a big road through, you know, heavy avalanche country and and operate, uh, that that's all pre, pre-production capital costs, and that is expensive. If you're open pitting up there, it's, it's a tough place to open pit. Our last year, cumulative snow at Bruce Jack, my last, my last year up at Bruce Jack, was over 22 meters of snow. So, you know, that's cumulative, but you have to shovel it if you have an open pit. You know, fortunately, Bruce Jack's an underground mine, so we just cleaned the surface. But from memory, I think we spent about $6 million a month in snow removal. That's, uh, again, you know, if you're mining a big open pit, super pit type thing for a low-grade deposit, you're mining a lot of snow to keep that pit operating. So you have to have enough grade to justify moving the rock, the waste rock and the snow. So all those things add up. And so you need, uh, you know, you need enough grade to justify building the mine. It's got to have enough size so that you get a payback on your capital, which is, you know, fairly extensive depending on where the mine's located. You're, Capital cost is going to be even greater if you have to tunnel a lot to get to it. That's expensive, tunneling through rock to get to a deposit. There's just so many factors that go into it. But the bottom line is size and grade. You need them both. The bigger you are, the lower grade you probably can get away with. But at some point, there's a minimum grade you'll need to make a mine. And so at, at BAM, you know, we believe we're sitting on a big gold copper porphyry. Uh, what you need to do with that is we, and we expect from what we've seen on surface, we've got some good gold grade. Um, and, and so we look at that and think, okay, we've got good grade on surface. That gold's coming from somewhere. We expect it's comparable grade or uh, potential to be good grade of depth. Um, and you know, if we have the copper to go with it, that also adds value. So we're looking for a large, lower grade, but big deposit at BAM. You, know, you never know. You could always find a, a Bruce Jack. Look at when we discovered Bruce Jack back at Pretium, we were drilling off and looking for a big low grade gold copper deposit, and we discovered a high grade uh, underground deposit. So it, it's the way mining the mining business works. But uh, we'll we'll get in there. Bam! We'll continue to look. We expect to find a big low lower grade gold copper deposit, but with enough size and close enough to infrastructure to make this project buildable. And, and that's what you have to focus on. Yeah, when you put everything together, just because you have a nice deposit with some grade and size, it, it might be in a location that, well, you're gonna have to build that, you know, have to wait quite a while before prices are high enough to justify all the infrastructure you have to build to put that mine in production. So not the most direct answer, but it's just the way things are up in the Golden Triangle.
lots of pieces of the puzzle to put together here. And I think a lot yeah, of the correct. stuff you said there is just good for folks to take notes on on some of those things that need to happen. And then, of course, with BAM, it's just so very preliminary and so greenfields that, you know, there's a lot of work to get done there and looking forward to uh, seeing you guys be able to obtain the funding to pursue that further. Uh, there's some more results that come out of that on efforts at BAM. I'd like to just stop there at British Columbia and move into Nevada, United States, and talk about the GABS project, Joe. Uh, this is PEA stage. Uh, there was recently an update to that PEA that just came out. Just talk about this project overall, the PEA results, and whether you think this is a viable project compared to other nearby Nevada projects of similar size and scale. What I like about GABS and why we picked this up, well, first of all, at P2 Gold, we're folk, you know, our, our top priority is jurisdiction. That's why we're in British Columbia, where you can build a mine, and we're in Nevada, where you can build a mine. And so jurisdiction is key. You can build a mine, and you're not going to have somebody come and take it away from you. So what we like about GAPS, when we picked this up in 2021, we just come out of the Golden Triangle. And as I've just been describing, uh, you know, infrastructure is tough up there. We, we, we looked at this project that was available in, uh, in Nevada, and there's a paved highway that goes through the corner of the property. It's, it's a two-hour drive from Reno, about a 45-minute drive from town of Hawthorne. So, you know, there's dirt roads throughout the property. You don't need to use a helicopter. Uh, just everything you could want. There's power on. There's a power line that actually crosses the property. There's, you know, historically there were water wells permitted on the property. Everything you want or need to build a mine was available. So we had that, and there was no mineralization on the property. There was an existing resource when we bought it, 1.8 million ounces of gold equivalent. That's, uh, you know, where you, and, and it was gold, golden, it's gold and copper, it gaps. Uh, but of that 1.8, 1.2 million was uh, made up of gold, and the other 600,000 ounces of equivalent was copper that, you know, you know using the, the relative price you convert the copper to to gold and so at 1.8 million ounces of gold it was some nice size but but what we noticed in looking at the data is you know historically the property had been worked hard and you know looked at hard in the late 80s early 90s to go in as a heap leach gold project uh, so and, you know for heap leach gold you focus on the oxides so all the drilling was about you know 300 feet down and they didn't drill deeper because the oxide goes down about 300 feet. So people were looking at that. Um, you know, some bulk sample, you know, a bulk sample was done by one of the gold companies, Glamis Gold, which, you know, eventually became what merged with Western Copper to become Western Silver or something and went into Gold Core, which got bought by Newmont. But they were there looking at the test on the on the material. And, and the reason that project wasn't built at the time was gold and copper for a heap leach where you're just you know uh, sprinkling cyanide over the project copper consumes a lot of that cyanide and, and so the costs were high because of this high cyanide consumption and that's why the project wasn't built in the 90s it pretty much sat with just some exploration in the early, early 2000s um, and then it, after that you know uh, the, the waterton who we purchased the project off of picked it up and just after gold price turned over in 2012 because they could pick it up cheap and set on it. So we saw it, thought, wow, this project's got great infrastructure. It's got gold copper mineralization, which is what we like, um, has known zones of mineralization, 
potential, you know, at 1.8 million ounces, we looked at and thought, look, there's near surface mineralization without looking deep. We think there's four to five million ounces of gold equivalent. So we came into that project in, in 2021, the fall of 21, completed 4,500 meters of drilling. And, and with that drilling, we, we increased the resource by over 50% to 2.7 million ounces of gold equivalent. So it, it just shows the potential there. Um, and so there's still more room to expand. The, the reason uh, we're not expanding it is you're not rewarded for expanding this type of, of thing. And, you know, as I say, the market's not good. Uh, so what we've done is we've moved ahead with the engineering because you can drill things off and make them bigger and bigger and bigger. But if you can't build a mine there, you're just throwing money away. So after we increased it to 2.7 million ounces, we said, look, we could make this bigger. Let's focus on, is it economic? And so we completed an initial PEA on the project um, just to look at the heat leaching uh, near surface. And, you know, it, it was marginally economic. It was economic, but, you know, we could see from that, look, there's more potential here. So we did an updated PEA right after that, which we just announced on September 11th which looks at the near surface oxide mineralization and the sulfide mineralization at depth. And what we have is a very robust project. We think definitely you're gonna see a mine at GABS. We think we can get that there in the next four years and change good economics. Right now, GABS, the way we see it, it's got about a 13 year mine life. Uh, over that mine life, you're producing on a gold equivalent basis, 1.86 million ounces of gold equivalent. And that's what copper beat up. There's 1.2 million ounces of gold, roughly 600,000 ounces of gold equivalent from copper. Now, uh, the one thing when you're looking at gold equivalent, it's, it's a relative price thing. So as the price of copper goes up and, you know, we think gold's going to go up as well. But, you know, as soon as copper comes out of this recessionary thought, um, you're going to start seeing demand reflected in copper it's going to be up well into the $4. And if gold is still in the 1900 to 2000, you're going to see copper coming up maybe at a higher rate than, than gold initially. And all of a sudden that project's 2 million ounces of gold equivalent because the higher uh, the copper price is relative to the gold price, the more gold equivalent you get out of the copper. And so hopefully I'm explaining that well enough there. So we think this is roughly a 2 million ounce gold equivalent project. Uh, once copper turns a bit. Right now, it's, as I say, two-thirds gold, one-third copper. I would expect over the next 10 years, as this mine's operating, it's going to be closer to 50-50, just because I think copper may have a little more leg. I think copper's a little more beat up right now than gold. Gold's down, but still pretty good price. Copper is, is down, uh, I think, fairly low. So on equivalency basis, I think it's going to get closer to a 50-50 gold-copper basis. And, you know, uh, that's that's just a great thing for a mine. So uh, that's just a quick intro to, to GABS. Great infrastructure, nice near surface resource, robust uh, economics. Uh, and so uh, it's going to be a mine. It's a question of when and how quickly we can move it forward. Joe, I think that overview was good. I appreciate you going through all that and giving us the details there. And things are fairly boring at the moment because, as you said, you're not being rewarded for expanding it. Uh, it sounds like that there is good potential for expansion there and that this can grow. And then 
obviously, for the most part, the market doesn't care about DFSs or PFSs or any of this stuff, PEAs. I think the challenge now is obviously you guys taking this forward to your comfort level of you know how far you take the economic studies through the chain of PEA to PFS to, to DFS. And in some cases of some of these silly juniors, they like to do DFSs 10 times before they finally make a decision. But anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> just to get your thoughts on there's a schedule, you know, this is looking at maybe something that might happen and call it uh, construction may begin in 25 or 26, potentially with, you know, production sometime in 26, 27 by the schedule. And obviously market conditions can change significantly at six months versus, you know, a couple of years. But just talk about, you know, your thoughts on first, I think we've got a good taste that there's expiration upside, but then also, what do you think about with the capex required and of course the size of the company today obviously that doesn't line up very well and for reasons you and i've already discussed but what about the potential to look at a maybe smaller starter project uh, how do you see financing this to get creative to move it forward because obviously cash flows like this can really help on the expiration front but just talk about how you look at how you guys are considering taking this forward and if there's the potential to scale down more or what your thoughts are there so the way we're approaching, if you look at our PEA, this update, uh, the way we're approaching it is in a couple phases. So uh, out of the gate, the mining rate's going to stay constant through a 13.4-year mine life, 6 million tons a year. So that's roughly 17,000 tons today, uh, 17,000 tons a day. So not a big open pit, but, you know, decent, decent tonnage. Um, so initially, it's going to be for the first five years, an open pit heat leach. So heat leach, you know, fairly straightforward. Uh, you know, there's a lot of them in in Nevada. Uh, so simple, easy construction. Capex, not very capex in intensive. Our estimated cost for for building that heat leach is 277.7 million bucks in pre-construction capital. And if we look at our economics. Uh, We'd start up as a heap leach for the first five years at spot prices uh, that we used for our, our, our news release on the 11th, a little, little lower than where we are today on the gold side, 1918 gold, uh, 373 copper. Uh, this thing gets paid off in three years. Uh, so we keep operating, building up our cash. We start construction midway through year four, end of year five. We, uh, beginning of year six, we start up the mill and we convert from an open pit heap leach to an open pit milling operation. Uh, you know, we've got the initial capital paid off, roughly 280 million. We've built up some cash before we start construction. We use our cash flow uh, to, to pay for most of the construction. By the end of the first year of operations, we pretty much have the mill paid off at spot prices. As middle prices go up, you know, we pay off the initial capital that much quicker and we pay off the mill that much quicker. But the way I look at this, it's not a big raise, roughly 280 million bucks to build this mine, get it cash flowing. After that, we don't need to raise any capital to build the mill part. We'd get, we'd have cash flow from operations, get a revolver in place uh, on the credit, you know, revolver credit uh, with some banks on the, uh, on the mine we're operating get those we've done it in the past and that will finance the mill side mill construction 
and you know pay that off pretty fast to, you know get that mill paid off in a year from starting production that means the rest of the mine life up to the current mine life is 13.4 years so that's all cash that can be used for growth or dividends whatever from you know beginning of year seven through the rest of the mine life and as i say lots of room for expansion potential here so i don't doubt that you're seeing a 20 plus year mine life at gap so you know that's that's a pretty good return on initial 288 million now to finance that 288 million that's that's not a big ticket for for a mine uh, a number of things we can look at like at for bruce jack we had to raise we 841 million us dollars to build bruce jack and we dealt with private equity for about 540 million of that came out of private equity some of the money was at 15 percent money now you can say that's a lot that's a, that's a pretty high intense interest rate but without doing that we went to build the mine and we created a lot of value for shareholders so you just have to look at what your return is what your expected return is and what's the cost of money um, and so we could do something similar here i don't think 288 is a big ticket for building a mine that's going to have we expect a 20 plus year mine life good rate of return, payback in the first, you know, essentially all your capital is paid back in the first three years. So I'd say definitely buildable and definitely financeable uh, by a company our size. And, you know, sure, our market cap's down around, you know, it's, geez, it's minuscule right now, about 12 million Canadian. But as we advance, as we advance GABs, move it into feasibility, start coming out of feasibility study, you're going to see our market cap move up. This at current spot prices, you know, this thing has a net present value to 5% discount of just under 300 million bucks. So you're going to see some of that uh, money reflected, uh, the value reflected in our share price as we advance the project. The further we advance it, the more it gets reflected in the share price. And so, yeah, I, I don't see an issue with raising 280 million bucks to build, to build gaps you're coming across as this is very doable and you're very confident that you guys can move this forward. And obviously you've got that backstop with your relationships at your prior posts with Predium and also just those relationships to be able to get that. Plus you're building this in Nevada, right in the middle of all kinds of open pit operations. So it's, it is very straightforward there. And, and it sounds like you're quite confident, even with your market cap that in a couple of years that this will get done and it'll be done in various bites through that period of time. What do you think your schedule is? You know, you guys do provide a schedule, that most recent update, but with your guys' background and experience, how quick do you see this getting to feasibility at this point? First thing we need to do is sell a royalty. And uh, assuming we sell the royalty this coming quarter, uh, which is our expectation, uh, we would look to initially we'll, we'll run, we need to do another round of metallurgy. We'll do, you know, more baseline environmental. We've done some, we need to do more. Uh, we have a couple other things we'd like to do, get our water wells permitted. Uh, you know, they were permitted in the past. We have to redo that. Uh, and then uh, maybe a little bit of just try to feel what we, one thing we want to do is get a feel for the depth of the alluvium, you know, just the, you know, the, the sand and gravel that's covering over the, the deposit so that we can get in there and get a good feel for what we need to do to open it up. So we'll do that. And then to say the first six months of 2024, our plan is to kick off the feasibility study in mid 2024. So June, July, you should see us starting a feasibility study on the project. 
we will jump right past. We will not do a pre-feasibility study. Uh, this project was studied extensively in the late 80s and early 90s. The reason it's available today, you know, it's gold and copper. Well, in the mid-1990s, after, you know, things that sort of subsided over at GABS, um, I believe it's SRK came up with a SART plant. And that what that is, it allows you to, you know, use a heat leach for gold and copper. You, uh, you essentially, you, you deal with the copper first. You precipitate the copper out by adding essentially sulfur. Um, and then that takes the copper and some silver. We have a bit of silver at, at GABS. Takes it out of the system. You process that and you recover the copper and silver and you sell that and then you take the uh, solution that leaves the SART plant and you extract the gold from that. So it was the you know creation of these SART plants that has allowed copper gold deposits to all of a sudden become, hey, these things are economic. Uh, and that was the big technical technological change between the mid 90s and today and allows us to make, put gaps into production. We'll start the feasibility study mid-June of 24, July 24, something like that, a year's worth of work to get that feasibility study done. We'll be doing running the environmental permitting all in tandem. We would like to see ourselves out of permitting. You know that we can't control the permitting timeline. All we can do is move things at our end along as quickly as we can. So get all the data, get very good solid, solid data, uh, put a good package together get that submitted into the government a BLM for, for approval. And, you know, uh, all goes well. We're permitted by mid-26. And then we're starting construction immediately. Uh, we'll get the financing lined up while we're waiting for the permits to come in and, and then be pouring gold in sort of mid-27. So uh, that's our plan. I, I got a little sidetracked with the SART plant there, but, you know, we do get that question a lot uh, from people that say, Okay, well, sure, you're going to build this thing, but why are you going to be any different from the guys in the late 80s, early 90s? Why, you know, they couldn't make a go of it. Why, why can't you? And so that's why I sort of got a little sidetracked there because the SAR plant's the big game changer for GABS. Their mainstream as can be uh, now, you'll see there's a number of them operating all over the world. And so that's how we address that question, what's different? And, and so SAR plants are what's different. Uh, nominal additional cost. I think if you look at our feasibility study or our preliminary economic assessment, the cost of the SART plant out of that 280 million bucks is, is just over 15 million bucks. So it's not a big cost and it, it's the game changer for, for GABS and other gold copper projects. Joe, I appreciate you bringing that up and good points on this. And I think the schedule's fine. I think that works pretty well. I think you and I are both confident in the sense that also conditions will be pretty suitable at that time to be able to get this done. And obviously there'll be lots of progress on BAM in the meantime, while you guys are doing this feasibility work, which will be, you know, feasibilities to investors for the most part are boring. And of course, why you guys have that going on, my suspicion is that things will be reasonable enough on the economic side that you guys will be able to potentially be doing some drilling work there to confirm a few things and just get that feasibility study confirmed up a bit. And then also you have the expiration upside with BAM during that period. And I suspect there'll be some capital to do some work up there at the same time. You know, there's always the potential during that period of time for discovery at BAM to coincide is not a bad little setup and the schedule looks pretty good there. 
on a side note, you have some non-core projects, Silver Reef and Lost Cabin. Can those be monetized over the next, call it year, two years to assist in capitalizing the other work or what's your thoughts on those projects? I think we have to look hard at both those projects. Do we keep them? Both of them have great potential, but in in this environment, there's a cost of carrying them. I, I don't see a lot of market for them right now because the people that you would market them to don't have cash. Their share prices are low, so they can't use their stock uh, to buy them. So, you know, it's, it's, it's that time in the market. It, you know, this is, I'm digressing here, but you know, the, the funny thing about acquiring projects for the most part, it's people don't acquire projects when they're cheap, things are beat up. They get bought at highs. And so when the majors, you know, are if they're gonna buy a project, you, you rarely see them taking out a junior with a promising discovery at an early stage. You, they, they usually come in when there's a lot of risk off the table, but by then the price is up, uh, the market's hot, and, and that's when they buy. So, um, you know, that, you know, you know, filters down to, you know, our level as well. Uh, you know, when things, sentiment's bad, there's no money around, Nobody's picking projects up, uh, but when things turn, sentiments up, values up, projects are in demand. Well, that's when people buy them. So it's 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 a little contrarian, but uh, unfortunately, that's just the market and the way it works. So I I don't see a big market for those uh, Silver Reef up in up in British Columbia. Lots of potential. We the one nice thing about British Columbia, uh, another nice thing about it, I should say, is is that there's still the ability, you can either pay an annual fee for your claims, or you can actually do work on the claims and file that against the, uh, the project. And so for Silver Reef, it's, we did, we've worked there, uh, you know, back in, geez, when was that, 2020. Uh, and so we did a fair bit of work on it, trying to get a, a feel for it. We did some work in 21. So those claims are in good standing till, you know, if I remember right, 2030. Uh, so, you know, we can just sit on that project and, and wait for the market to change. And, you know, either we have the cash to go back in there and, and take advantage of it, or, or we option it off when, when people have, have more cash or, or stock with value. Lost Cabin, different thing. Again, it's on BLM land in Oregon. We like it. Great potential. Ken's had some interest in this project uh, in a prior company he was with, had it. And so that's why we, we, we picked it up great potential, but, you know, BLM fees, you have to pay them annually. Uh, and so at some point we're going to have to either get in there and drill it and, and have a, a feel for it, or we're going to have to look to either uh, sell it off to someone or, or, or drop it. Uh, but that, that's just, you know, the exploration business. Uh, you have a bunch of projects, uh, usually one or two rise to the top and, and a number of others that, you know, you, move on and, and either drop them or pass them on to somebody else. And so uh, better to, to find out earlier than later because it, it costs you to keep these projects on the books. I think overall with what you've told us, we have a good idea of what the strategy is and it's a good strategy. I appreciate you outlining the very good potential with BAM and then also backstopping it with a project that is simple and 
just needs to be moved forward and eventually we'll see cash flow. I think we'll leave it there for now, Joe, just because of, for the sake of time, I want to respect your time and appreciate all of the information we've talked here. And we've gone into a little more detail than just introductory. But last question here, just for potential investors who are listening in, the company has a market capitalization now of about 13.5 million Canadian dollars. Why should investors consider P2 Gold at this stage? Well, I'd like to say, you know, three reasons you should consider an investment in P2. We've got an experienced management team. We know what it takes to be successful. Um, we've got our GABS project, solid project. It's going to be a mine, and we can see that horizon that we can build it into that mine. And then uh, lastly, we're aligned with our shareholder. Management owns over 20% of the company. Geez, uh, Ken and I probably have between us about eight million bucks into the company. Uh, we've done a lot of the financings, uh, the hard dollar financings over the last couple of years. Uh, so you know, look at you've got you've got experienced management, you've got a, a great project, and you're aligned with management who are incentivized to make the company a success. So I'll leave it with that. And Joe, the best way for folks to reach out to the company. Oh, look, at, they can email me. At, look at any of our news releases. My email address is on the bottom. Send me a note. Happy to chat with anyone. Look at, uh, we always enjoy speaking with shareholders or prospective shareholders because it, it, it keeps you, you know, up to date on what people are thinking in the market. And so happy to have chats with people along the way. So, uh, and we have our news releases on our website, www.p2gold.com. Anyways, happy to chat. Well, Joe, thank you for the introduction and for the time. Best of luck in the coming months. We'll keep tracking this and let's look forward to uh, chatting again soon. Well, thank you very much for the time, Andrew. Always a pleasure.